Good morning, everyone. <laughs> so I'm, I already get nervous coming up to share the message. You know, I, I lament leading up to a message, a sermon message, because it's, it really is a reverent thing to share the Word of God. And you don't want to make the mistake of sharing something that God didn't intend. And so Pastor Nick comes up here and says those words, and it, immediately the anxiety inside of me you know, starts to come up. I'm like, am I going to say all the right things now? I want to make sure that this is good. Well, I've been praying a lot about what to share this morning, and I think it's a good time to evaluate the value of the kingdom of God. And we didn't plan for this. Uh, Pastor Chris Gorman preached last, last week, and th- there's multiple preachers are going to be preaching. I want to say a little something on that first off. Uh, I think it's such a great thing that we allow our pastors at our church to take a break occasionally, you know, because the worst thing you want is a pastor to get burned out, you know, with the, the preaching of the word of God. And um, he didn't pay me to say that, uh, nor did he say I was going to share that. So that's the good news uh, in all that. And um, so I'm, I'm really thankful to be here. And I feel, I feel unworthy. I'm still a young man. I'm still uh, growing in the Lord. I'm still learning to, to preach and to teach. But I think God has really given me a desire to do these things over time. That wasn't always the case. And so I'm glad to be here. And just by way of introduction, um, I, I just want to... To, to evaluate the message last week, because God didn't plan for, I didn't plan for this to happen, God planned for this to happen, where the message just worked so seamlessly between what Pastor Chris Gorman preached last week and what I'll be preaching this week. And just by way of rem- reminder, it was Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 12, and remember it had to do with collecting the harvest. And, and Pastor Gorman spoke about his experiences being out in the woods, in the sticks, you know, collecting the harvest. This week, we're going to be looking at what is the other perspective. So rather than being the one collecting the harvest, what about the one who's being harvested? And what is the perspective of one who comes into the knowledge and the saving faith of the Lord Jesus Christ? And so we're going to look at the value of the kingdom of God. We're going to estimate what is the value of the kingdom of God. And we're going to examine that together. And I don't want anyone's view of the kingdom to fall short this morning. And I really have two objectives that I want to get at. Number one is that we would better understand what the value of the kingdom of God is. And secondly, that we would respond in a manner that is worthy of the value of the kingdom of God. And I know the the housing market right now is really hot in the Northwest. I mean, if there's ever a time to sell, it's now, right? And just recently, my wife and our family and I, we all moved to the Graham area, and we had to do the appraisal thing, you know? And it's amazing how much that appraisal means when it comes to selling your house and going to buy another house. I mean, everything sort of hinges on the appraisal and what that's going to come back as. And so there are multiple ways that we evaluate things. And right now, housing market is a big concept of valuating. And I just want to talk just very briefly about how we value things. And there's two ways, as I see it, that we value things. One is, how rare is an item? Because if an item is extremely rare, then it's going to be a very valuable item. And number two is, what is the quality of that item that you're purchasing? And if you have something that's of very good quality and that's very rare, it's going to be valued very highly. An example would be a flawless diamond ring, right? Those things that people are searching out. So with that, I know that uh, we value the Word of God. We've talked about the inerrancy of the Word of God. So will you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? These are the words of the living God. Matthew chapter 13, and starting in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, 
he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've brought us here this morning into a mode of worship to you. Lord, I pray that the words that are spoken wouldn't fall short of communicating how valuable your kingdom is. That we must give up everything in light of who Jesus is. And even everything that we give up would never live up to the value that you have established in the matter of your kingdom. Lord, may these words be resonating in our hearts, and as we uh, listen to the words, may this be lifted up to you as a pleasing aroma, and may you be pleased in the thoughts and the words and the actions that are to take place as a result of this message. We love you, we praise you, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, to aid us in our understanding of the appraisal, we're going to examine two short parables that Jesus shared with his disciples. And even now, as his disciples, we get to share in the teaching of Jesus' parables. And so I want, to, I want to bring to your attention what a parable is. I know that many of us have, have heard parables over the years, and, and we've learned a great deal amount of the spiritual truths that are related to that. But I just wanted to bring to your attention what a parable is. And this is a word that is derived from two Greek word, roots, para, which means beside, and balo, throw. And so parable literally means to throw beside. And so Jesus is throwing something beside something else in this case. And this is where we get the word parabola for those math geniuses out there. I love math, and I'm thinking, all right, finally, we get to see how math is kind of rolled into this whole concept of a parable, right? And for those of you who aren't math geniuses, you're just, you lost me at para or balo, you know? Uh, but we can get really nerded out in some of these words. Well, in a similar fashion, a parable is something that is thrown beside a mirroring spiritual truth. On one side, you have a story that Jesus is sharing. There's this physical thing that people can hear and they can associate with. You know, but then on the deeper side of things, there's a spiritual reality that Jesus is sharing. So Jesus was a master storyteller. I mean, he would share a story, but the underlying message that he's trying to communicate has a deep and profound spiritual truth. And in the context of Jesus' teaching, I want to offer you this definition of a parable. A parable is a simple word picture that illuminates a deep and profound spiritual truth. I'm going to say that one more time. A parable is a simple word picture that illuminates a deep and profound spiritual truth. And it amazes me in how such few words Jesus can communicate some of the deepest spiritual truths in our lives. And my wife reminded me this morning, this is now the third time I've had the opportunity to, to share the message, and I have had the opportunity to select sort of what, what, what's going to be brought and I'm, I'm realizing now this is the third time that I'll be preaching on a parable. <laughs> so I'm really starting to really love parables as it turns out. I didn't even recognize that that was a pattern until my wife pointed it out. So we're going to prove this morning that there are deep spiritual truths associated with these words. Because we're going to spend the majority of our time dissecting two parables shared in only three brief Bible verses. Jesus gives us a reason for why he speaks in parables. It's revealed to us in Matthew chapter 13 and starting in verse 10. And I'm going to turn there very briefly. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 10. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, 
Even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And then in verse 16, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and did not see it, and hear what you hear, and did not hear it. I mean, two things that are revealed in this passage, right? Number one is the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been revealed through the teaching of Jesus' parables. And number two is that there are prophets and righteous people who have longed to know the truths that we get to understand through the teaching of the parables. So this is no small thing because even today, as we read the parables of Jesus Christ, we are inheriting a major spiritual truth. A spiritual truth that prophets and many righteous people longed to hear ages and ages ago. So let's tune ourselves now into that thought, right? That Jesus is communicating something to us that many have longed to hear years ago. Now note that in both parables the kingdom of heaven is mentioned. And last week we looked at Luke chapter 10. And rather than kingdom of heaven, Luke uses the word kingdom of God. And the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God can be used interchangeably. And I think that the reason why Matthew chooses the kingdom of heaven as opposed to the kingdom of God is that he's appealing to his Jewish readers at that time. And it wasn't uncommon for a Jewish person to substitute the word God with heaven because there was this reverence in in the terms of the use of the word God, and so they would substitute that with heaven. And so it was a normal thing to do that. And in Luke's account of the gospel, he chooses to use the kingdom of God, describing the same events that Matthew is describing. In Matthew chapter 13, which is the passage that we're in this morning, is devoted to describing the kingdom of heaven. And this is no surprise to us because when you look at the reading of Matthew in general, he purposes to demonstrate to us that Jesus is king and Jesus is Messiah. So do you think that someone who purposes to demonstrate that is going to be talking about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven? Absolutely. And so this has become a signature phrase for Matthew. He uses it 32 times and eight times in this chapter alone. I hope you're getting a sense now that Matthew is passionate about describing to us the kingdom of heaven. Well, what is the kingdom of heaven? You know, I feel like I ask such simple questions sometimes, you know, like, what is a parable and what is the kingdom of heaven? And this is just, this is me now. People ask me some of the simplest questions and I don't know how to answer them. You know, it's like, I know what it is, but you're asking me what it is, and I don't know how to put into the words this very simple thing that you've asked me. And so I think it's important that we just ask ourselves these questions sometimes, right? What is the kingdom of heaven? Well, in John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And so he's describing that there are two kingdoms at hand. There's the kingdom that is of this world, and then there's the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of this world is the evil system under which the devil presides. It is a system of darkness and blindness and unbelief. It is a system under which there is no affection or desire for who God is. We were once citizens of that kingdom, all of us. But then something happened when God took us and transformed us and illuminated our minds. And he called us into a different kind of kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. 
Our calling is to that kingdom which is from above. It is the kingdom of light and truth and righteousness. It is the reign of grace and salvation within the hearts of men and women who would put their trust and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a definite realm of jurisdiction over which Jesus is the presiding king and ruler and Messiah. And it contains within it the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. In his work of salvation in our lives, God pulls us out from the dominion of Satan and he places us under the dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the dominion by which Jesus is king and ruler. So I want to offer this simple definition of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is the domain under which Jesus is the undisputed Messiah and king. And even now, even right now, the kingdom of God is fully operative. The kingdom of God is both now and it is to come. And in Luke chapter 17, verses 20 to 21, Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven being right, right now. Let me just read this to you. Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of God is fully operative right now. And last week, Pastor Chris Gorman spoke about the, the excitement around harvesting. And I've had some opportunities over the past couple of weeks to go out into the communities and present the gospel. And I think there's a misconception that unfortunately we have received that when we go out and we share the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's immediately going to be met with hostility. Because that's how unbelievers respond to the gospel, right? With hostility. But when you go into the communities to present to them the word of God, I think that if you do that, you'll be shocked to see that people are thirsty for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look, all they needed was somebody to come and explain to them what the truth is. And so having this boldness and presentation of being able to share what is the kingdom of God. His kingdom is fully operative right now. And it's just like this image in my mind. It's like a wormhole. A cloud has just opened up in every situation where you share the gospel message. And right there, the kingdom of heaven is near. So it is both to come and even right now. And so, even though it is here, it's also not the full expression of the kingdom of God, right? Because when Jesus comes back, we are going to experience the fullness of the expression of the kingdom of God. And I think this is the, the Corinth church was suffering with this situation where they were putting themselves in the not yet, right? Because we're caught between the now and the not yet. And Paul corrects them and says, have you already become kings and rulers? Right? They're already situating themselves in that position where they're already experiencing the fullness of the kingdom of God, but we're not quite there yet. So we as followers of Christ, are caught between the now and the not yet, but the kingdom of God is fully operative even now. And when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like this, this is the kingdom that God is referring to. He's referring to the kingdom in which we are all situated. Now let's turn to our passage this morning, Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44, and examine the value of the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 13, one short verse. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So you have a picture now of this laborer in a field. 
And there's one thing that we know about this person is he doesn't own the field because he's the laborer in the field. And if he owned the field, someone else would be laboring in that field. And so you have this, this person who is laboring in a field, and he comes across something in the ground as he's digging. And now, it wasn't uncommon during that time as Jesus was speaking that people would bury their treasures in the ground. There's a few reasons why somebody might bury a treasure in the ground. One is it's like a banking and a safekeeping, right? And it's, it's sort of similar to when you go to the bank, you've got those deposit things, you know? I know there's, maybe there's some people in this room who, who have items that valuable that you do that. I don't. So I don't. I don't particularly know how that works, but you go in and there's a key and all that stuff. And so if you wanted to, to, to keep your items safe, your most valuable items, you would bury them in the ground somewhere because people are unlikely to just go around and start randomly digging holes all over your yard, right? So it'd be very difficult to find that treasure. Another reason why someone might do that is that warfare is about to take place and your home is about to be pillaged and you're going to lose all of your valuable items. And so what do you do before the the people come in and take everything that you own? You go and you bury your most valuable items. Okay, so you have this man in a field laboring. He's just doing his regular everyday thing, you know, shovel to the ground and he's just digging and then clink, there's something now on the ground. And he digs this treasure up, and he pulls it out of the ground, and he opens the treasure box, or whatever that sack was, and he is in shock over what it is that he found. In fact, he's in so much shock and so much disbelief over the value of this item that he goes and he liquidates everything. His house must go. His car must go. The, the TV and everything in his house must go. Yeah, I know, those things weren't there at that time, but you get the point that I'm making. Anything that is of value in him that he thought was valuable, he's now selling off. And he's liquidating everything, the clothes. I mean, he is just stripped bare as a result of this treasure that he found in order that he can go and purchase this one priceless treasure that he found. This is like the kingdom of God. That when you find it, everything around you just dissolves. Nothing matters anymore. Nothing has value anymore because of the value that is found in the kingdom of God. And he doesn't delay either. It's not like he says, all right, let me just bury this thing up. Let me go home and think about it for three weeks. Just kind of meditate on what it is that I found. Kind of, you know, look up Google all the elements of there, and then, you know, I'll think about it. It wasn't like that. The moment that he saw this treasure, he liquidates everything. That is how excited this individual is over the kingdom of God. Are you getting the sense that this person is excited about the value of the treasure box that he found? Now, remember, this is a parable. This is not about just finding some box in the ground. Jesus is revealing some deeper spiritual truth. And what he's pointing to is the value of the kingdom of God is like that, that when you find it, you give up everything. Everything becomes of little value in comparison to the value of the kingdom of God. And note, he also says, in joy, he sells everything. There isn't this begrudging, oh, i got to go and sell everything in my house now in order to, to take this one thing. No, he is, he is in pure joy. And how many of us, when we, when we participate in the kingdom of, of God, we're just like obligatory, right? It's like we're just doing this thing out of obligation. 
that's not like the kingdom of heaven. If you know what the value of the kingdom of heaven is like, there is joy that comes with that. And so this man joyfully goes and liquidates everything that he has. You know, how many of us, when we go through the paces of life and work and we're observing people just doing their regular routine, stop and question, what are we doing? Why are we here? This man who is in the field is just doing his regular routine. And how I desire that people would come to this realization that your value is based on the blood and the value of Jesus Christ. And when you evaluate the value of Jesus' blood, which is priceless and pure, I mean, let me just give you an illustration, okay? When someone is faced before God and they are condemned because their sins are not forgiven, they will go to hell for eternity. Like, I mean, think about it. When people go to prison, and I serve in prison all the time, there's usually a, a sentence. Like, even for people who have been sentenced to life, it's like 300 years, you know, and this is why we call it a life sentence, is because you're never going to live 300 years. But there is a time frame that's there. But when people are undergoing the eternal punishment in hell, there is no amount of time that will pay that off. But the blood of Jesus Christ instantly pays it off. I mean, think about that for a moment, right? How priceless, how valuable the blood of Jesus Christ is that one person can't pay for eternity the debt that they deserve. And Jesus enters in the picture, and he pays that price willingly and gladly in order that we would experience the joys of the value of the kingdom of God. And perhaps you can relate to this parable. Maybe you were one of those people who regularly and routinely just sort of stumbled across the word of God. I mean, I know that was my story. I was just like doing my thing, and boom, two guys come up to me and start sharing the gospel with me. Had they not done that, I wouldn't be where I'm at now, you know, unless God had sent someone else. So thank God that I just happened to stumble across this great treasure. And the Apostle Paul embodies this parable, and he stumbled across this great treasure. He was a man born in the flesh in Tarsus but was born of the Spirit on the road to Damascus. Interesting note, by the way, that place Tarsus that Paul is from, I live just northwest of that, that city. And uh, Tarsus is a lot smaller than I think it used to be, but it's, it's a beautiful spot. So on that road, his name was still Saul, wasn't it? He was a Pharisee, and he was a teacher of the law, and he was on his way to get this, to persecute the church. He was the church's earliest and most dangerous threat and tool of Satan. And he stumbled across this great treasure. And on that day of visitation, it was like the clouds had rolled away. God had opened his mind to the things of Christ. He received forgiveness and salvation and a new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that moment, Paul liquidated everything. He dumped everything and he received Jesus Christ. And then Jesus gave a disciple named Ananias a vision at Damascus. Remember that? And he said, I'm going to show Paul what great things he must suffer. That's recorded in Acts chapter 9, verse 16. Jesus liquidates everything for Jesus Christ, okay? And he has just entered into the realm of the kingdom of God. And Jesus called a man named Ananias... And he told him, I'm going to show Paul 
what great things I must suffer. I mean, think about that for a moment, right? What does Jesus require of you when it comes to the kingdom of heaven? I mean, it's, it's like, welcome to the kingdom of heaven, Paul. It's time to suffer. Imagine the treasure of Jesus who offers salvation. And we sing hallelujah. And we rejoice at the thought. And then Jesus comes along and he says, I need to show you what great things you must suffer now. Right? I mean, I, there, I, I don't want to make light of this. I mean, personally, that would terrify me a little bit. But in light of the value of the kingdom of God, it's meaningless. And we strive to acquire nice homes, nice cars, comfy chairs, air conditioning, entertainment systems. And we claim those things in Jesus' name. I mean, how futile and foolish is it to say this? And look, I'm not saying that you shouldn't own a home or an air conditioning system or an entertainment system. We just bought an AC unit for our home. But what I am saying is, if your Christianity is that, you've completely missed the point of the value of the kingdom of God. Because you haven't found that treasure that is so valuable that all of that doesn't even matter when it comes to the reality and in light of who Jesus Christ is. And Paul gives us insight to his conversion in Philippians chapter 3. And I'm going to turn to Philippians chapter 3 for a moment because this is powerful. Philippians chapter 3, in verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever, mark this, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Amen. And he's writing a letter to a church that was born out of his imprisonment. Remember, Paul and Silas were being stripped and beaten severely for proclaiming Christ. They were praying and singing hymns in the prison, and then all of a sudden, an earthquake shook the ground. Remember that? And the foundations and the doors were open, and the chains fell off. And the jailer was terrified at that point. Because if his prisoners got away, it meant death for him. And so they were scared, and Paul and Silas... Reaching out to this man said, don't kill yourself. And this is what it resulted in. What will it take for me to be saved? And the gospel was proclaimed. And a church was born as a result of Paul's imprisonment and suffering, suffering for the sake of the kingdom of God. Now fast forward 10 years, and there's this flourishing Christian community in Philippi. Paul is writing to them, this time from another prison in Rome. And he's telling them not to be discouraged by his imprisonment. And he provides them the reason for his incarceration, and that is in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. He says, I want you to know, brothers, 
that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He was placed into a prison for presenting the gospel message of Jesus Christ. He wasn't there as a murderer or as a thief or some sort of crime that you would expect a criminal to be in there. He was there because he was sharing the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that testimony had spread to people, people who have never heard of Jesus Christ, now receiving Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And now people are proclaiming the word of God more boldly than before because of Paul's imprisonment. Persecution takes place. And you would think in a mode of persecution that people would actually shrink back from presenting the gospel message. But what happens in this case, Paul is imprisoned, he's treated unfairly, and instead, when people view him in the prison, they're actually more emboldened to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's not in despair at this moment. He is full of hope and rejoicing. In fact, he has more joy in that dark cell than many of us have in broad daylight because of the joy that he's experiencing in Jesus Christ. And how is it possible, and what is the reason for this hope? And he shares that with us in in Philippians chapter 3, which is what we just read. Paul has one treasure, and his treasure is Jesus Christ. And he says, in light of Jesus Christ, everything he says, I consider it as dung, as poop. Now, I I hesitate to share this illustration, but I love this illustration, so I'm just going to go ahead and do it, okay? Because this is is my story. Growing up, I loved playing in poop. Not not real poop, spiritual poop, okay? Like, don't don't picture me as a little kid, like, yeah, and then my mom's like, you know, it wasn't like that. But I love playing with poop, you know, and the thing is, like, when, when you're playing with poop, as someone who doesn't know Jesus Christ, you don't even know any differently, Like, the smell that's coming up is disgusting, but you don't know it because you smell it all the time. You sit here and got your hands all in it, you know, and you're just in the filth of the poop. You don't even know. It's just nasty, right? And this is like the spiritual state of somebody who doesn't know Jesus Christ, and their value really is in the poop. You're like, everything I know, like, all this poop is so valuable to me, and you're just, like, smearing it. I mean, it's disgusting. But look, when you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, it's like a gold bar has suddenly been put right in front of you, and you're now comparing dung, poop, to this immensely valuable thing. This is why it is so easy to give up everything for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ, because you realize that your whole life You've been playing with poop, and you've come to recognize the value of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think it's fair to ask the question, right, what were some of the contents in the treasure box? And this is something that sort of came to me this morning, so I don't really have slides set up for this, but I think this is so important that we recognize that this individual who's opening this treasure box, what is it that they're going to find in there? And Paul reveals to us the contents of this treasure box. So put your thinking caps on, okay, because I'm going to be going really quick through the book of Romans. And this book is something that you could spend years on talking about, okay? And this is what he unveils for us. First of all, he reveals to us that God is holy and just. He he reveals to us in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to chapter 3, verse 20, the devastating impact of sin in the world, that we lack a righteousness of our own, and we fall woefully short of God's glory. 
And if you were to weigh your righteousness in line with God's righteousness, you fall woefully short, and you are found wanting. Because it's not right to weigh yourself in the balance of other people's righteousness. It wouldn't do you any good. But when you weigh yourself in God's righteousness, now you find yourself wanting big time. Romans chapter 3, verse 5 says, Our unrighteousness shows God's righteousness. God is a righteous and just God, and we are rightfully condemned before God. His justice must be satisfied. But praise God, because in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, it says, But now, but God... The righteousness of God has been revealed and manifested apart from the law in Jesus Christ. Jesus meets all the righteous requirements to meet God's justice so that God can be both just and the justifier. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't. Jesus is our righteousness. Praise God. Next, he reveals God's mercies towards us. In Romans chapter 3, verse 21, and to the end of chapter 5, Paul points us to the only remedy, the only source of salvation, Jesus Christ. A reconciled relationship with God requires forgiveness from sin. We cannot be reconciled on our own merits, but on the merits of Jesus Christ alone. Salvation is offered as a gift received by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. As a result, God is both just and the justifier. Jesus is our salvation and our worthy sacrifice, which satisfies God's justice for all who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And then he goes on to talk about God's faithfulness in finishing the work that he started in the life of a believer, that he is our strength. In Romans chapter 6, verse 1, to the end of chapter 8, the Holy Spirit seals us into the work of his salvation. The permanent indwelling spirit now living inside the life of a believer in Christ. Amazing declarations are made throughout Romans. Things like this. We have received a spirit of adoption as children by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit of God himself bears witness that we are his children. And if children, then we are joint heirs with Christ. We are the children of God. This is an incredible spiritual reality. And nothing, nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. He will finish that good work that he started in you. And it is a promise that he is with us. Jesus is our guarantee. The one who died, and more than that, the one who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, interceding for you and for me. Praise God. And finally, he reveals God's sovereign power over all these things. Romans chapter 9, verse 1 to the end of chapter 11, that his plans are never thwarted. God's promises are forever true. And his plans are established so surely that it is as if it has already taken place. Like that is how confident we can be in the sovereignty of God's eternal purposes. It's like it's already happened. 
We are included in his great work of salvation, and not only included, but active participants. Last week, Chris talked about it's a graceful thing of God to allow us to participate in the salvation. You see, because Jesus doesn't need us, but he has chosen by his grace to involve us. You know, that person who is digging that shovel in the ground, okay, in this story, he hits that thing. Our role and function as the body of Christ is to take that shovel where they've been digging it in the wrong place and bring it, boom, dig right here, because that's where you'll find Jesus Christ. That is the role and the function that Jesus has given to the church, to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ and to be active participants in calling people into the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We operate strictly under his direction, for it is Jesus who says, I will build my church. Jesus is our sovereign king, and we submit to his sovereign authority. And the chapter ends with this passionate praise towards God. Listen to this, starting in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, who hath been his counselor, or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He just can't hold it in. He's like, just glory to God and all these things that has been unpacked. So you see, the treasure that is offered to us is one that you just cannot get. Remember, it is rare. Because if Jesus is the only way to salvation, that makes it extremely rare. Because people are searching out all kinds of different methods to come to this point of salvation. It's rare and the quality is like none other. It is extremely valuable. Jesus is preeminent. He's number one. There's no one else. It's just Jesus. He is our great treasure. He is our all in all. And Paul knew Jesus died for him, not only to save him a place in heaven, but to receive the fullness of Christ in his life. He got to experience that joy when he was going through suffering, and so do we. God gives us what is really valuable, joy, peace with God, a place in heaven. We are spared of things that we deserve, and we are receiving things that we don't deserve. Just picture this man in the field, just him and this treasure. That's it. There's nothing more. This is how valuable the kingdom of God is. Okay, Matthew chapter 13, verse 45 to 46. One more parable, right? And it's kind of in line with the same one that we just looked at. Matthew chapter 13. The pearl of great price, starting in verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now notice this time it's a merchant seeking fine pearls. This is a man who knew pearls. He knew valuable items. This is no longer just a laborer in a field. This is a merchant who knows of pearls. And he was a tradesman in this industry. And pearls have long been known as the queen of gems. So it's no surprise that Jesus is using this as an example. It's the only gem in the world that's actually created by way of a living organism. A natural pearl is one that's never been touched by any human hands. And it was risky business for people to go and search out those pearls. They would literally tie straps around their waist and put a weight on them, and then they would fall to the floor, and they would go searching for these pearls. And there were times where they just didn't make it up alive because they just wanted every second to count when they went searching for those pearls. And so this was a very dangerous thing to go out and search for these things. And so it's a very valuable item. 
And at the height of the Roman Empire, about 2,000 years ago, there's a historian named Suetonius who wrote about another Roman emperor, Vitilius, who financed an entire military campaign, mark this, with his mother's pearl earrings. Like that's how valuable pearls were at that time. And this is just an interesting thing that I found out. The largest pearl that we've ever found was by a Filipino diver about 15 years ago, and it measured 26 inches long and 12 inches wide, and it weighed 75 pounds. <laughs> That's amazing. This thing's estimated to be valued at over $100 million, but nobody can really know how much it's worth, right, because it's never been up for auction. So these were so valuable that people even worshipped pearls. So you have this picture of this wealthy individual who knows pearls. He's in the trade. And he finds that pearl of great value, and what does he do? He liquidates everything that he has. I mean, the story is the same. He sells off everything. All those valuable pearls that he thought were valuable now pale in comparison to that one priceless pearl. And I'll tell you, you know, in the business world, this is really poor business etiquette. You don't just sell everything off for this, just this one thing. Like you don't put all your money into one stock market. You diversify your stock market, you know. But this individual came to saying this one priceless pearl, and it was so valuable that he sold all of his pearls in order to attain this one priceless pearl. See, when our gaze becomes fixed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, we are ready to receive Jesus and liquidate everything that we own. And this depicts that individual, right, who's just dwelling in all the spiritual things. I don't know how many people I've talked to, they're all into mindfulness and Buddhism, you know, and, you know, I wake up every morning and I empty my mind out. And when I have conversations with people like that, I say, when I wake up in the morning, I actually fill my mind up, you know, with the Spirit of Christ. It's like we're not called to empty our minds out, we're actually filled to, we're called to fill it up with the Word of God, with the Spirit of Christ, and it brings us joy. Well, Charles Spurgeon had a testimony similar to this one. He was in search of all those spiritual things. Charles Haddon Spurgeon mentioned that as a child, he tried to learn the way of salvation. You know, he read the Bible. He was taught by Christian people. His parents were Christian. He heard the gospel. He had been exposed to all these various truths, and he was seeking the way of salvation. These were the small pearls that he carried with him as he grew up. And these are, these are Charles' own words, the Christian community the exposure to biblical truths and life applications, morality, old prejudices, conceit, boastful things, the sinful pleasures and passions of the flesh, you know, the things for the desire for money, to be seen, and immorality of all kinds. And mark this, he said, even his own manufactured righteousness. Later in his life, Charles said this, you feel yourself in tolerably good shape, now, friend, that old moth-eaten righteousness of yours that you are so proud of, you must sell it off and get rid of it. For no man can be saved by, righteous, by righteousness of Christ while he puts on trust in his own self. Sell it all, every rag of it, and if nobody will buy it at any rate, you must part with it. Assuredly, it is not worth putting among the filthiest of rags, for it is the worst. Your self-righteousness is the worst of the filthy rags, according to Charles. And one Sunday morning, following a snowstorm, he was headed out to a certain church to worship. And when he could go no further, because the snow had piled up, and there were very few people going to church that day because it was very hard to get around, he stopped, and these are his words, okay, not mine, so don't judge the preacher. A primitive Methodist chapel is how he worded it. And there were only about 12 to 15 people that showed up. 
The preacher didn't even show up that morning, probably because he was snowed in, and so someone else had to fill the pulpit, and Charles Spurgeon called him really stupid. It gets better, though, <laughs> because he didn't say much more than what the passage was. The preacher was repeating over and over and over again the passage of Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22. Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. And after going on and on at some length, about 10 minutes, the preacher was reaching the end of his tether when he fixed his gaze upon Charles Spurgeon in the back of the room. And he said, young man, you look very miserable. I mean, imagine that a newcomer comes into church for the first time, you know, and they're just walking in and they're just like, you look miserable, you know? And that's sort of how that pastor had treated him at the time. You look so miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death. You shall be if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now this moment, you will be saved. Then the preacher, lifting up his hands, he shouted, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look to Jesus and be saved. And said Charles, I looked. Oh, I looked, he said. I looked almost until I could have looked my eyes away. Then and there the cloud was gone and the darkness had rolled away. And in that moment I saw the sun. These are Charles' own words. In that moment he saw the priceless pearl of Jesus Christ. And he had this to say, if I understand the gospel, it is this. I deserve to be lost forever. The only reason I should not be damned is that Christ was punished in my stead. And there is no need to execute a sentence twice for sin. On the other hand, I know I cannot enter into heaven unless I have a perfect righteousness. I am absolutely certain I shall never have one of my own, for I find I sin every day. But then Christ had a perfect righteousness. He said, there, poor sinner, take my garment, put it on, and you shall stand before God as if you were Christ, and I shall stand before God as if I had been the sinner. I will suffer in the sinner's stead, and you shall be rewarded for works which you did not do, but which I did in you. I find it very convenient every day to come to Christ as a sinner as I came at first. You are no saint, says the devil. Well, if I am not, I am a sinner. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Sink or swim, I go to him. Other hope, I have none. All his hope and worth was placed in this one priceless pearl. And he needed no other pearls in that moment. He was looking for goodness and honesty and virtue and peace and joy, the kingdom, salvation. And maybe he thought he could find those things in all these other places. But to his shock, he found it in one place, Jesus Christ. I don't know how stupid that preacher was that day. But I know he did something by the work of God in this man, Charles Spurgeon. I know very few people who have impacted so many souls as Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Picture this merchant now, just him, in this priceless pearl. That's it. There's nothing else. It's just Jesus. So what do we do with all this? What are some pearls that you're holding back? 
from possessing the one priceless pearl? Is it health? Is it comfort? Is it peace? Self-righteousness? Is it resources or time? You see, Jesus isn't just some sort of connection in your tool belt. He's life itself. He's not an auxiliary connection tool for you just to throw out occasionally. Like, there's just Jesus. And when we see the pearl for what it is, we gladly give up everything. Right? Buddha, Mohammed, mindfulness, all these things fall woefully short of giving us what we truly need, which can be found in Jesus Christ. There is an exchange that takes place at the moment that we see that priceless pearl, right? In both circumstances, the men gave up everything. So look, we're talking about valuating the kingdom of God. Do you know how you evaluate the kingdom of God? I don't care if you are the laborer working in the field with very little money or if you are the merchant who's searching out fine pearls. In order to receive the kingdom of God, we must give up everything. You see, and even everything that we give up won't measure up to the value of the kingdom of God. That's how valuable the kingdom of God is. We cannot purchase it, but there is a transaction that takes place in that moment. We give up everything for Jesus Christ. When we lay our heads down on our pillows at night and we ask ourselves, what matters most to me? If the answer falls anything short of Jesus Christ, we haven't found the priceless pearl. You know, and I, I, I fall into this trap where it's like my, my distractions just fall away from Jesus Christ and my focus is on everything else that I think I find value in. And I have to, to, to just transform my mind into that mode of thought that the Spirit gave me, which is Jesus Christ. It's just Jesus. And when there's just Jesus in your life, everything fades. It vanishes and dissolves in comparison to the value that we find in Jesus Christ. What distractions are holding you back from receiving the fullness of Christ? According to several studies, we make about 35,000 choices a day. That's just on a subject of food alone. (laughs) That's food. (laughs) You know, 35,000. I'm like thinking, I don't recall making 35,000, but apparently there's something going on with the, you know, the brains or whatever. I don't understand it. Uh, I'm sorry, 226 decisions a day on food, but $35,000 choices a day. Jesus posed a two-sided rhetorical question for us to consider. Remember this? For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? This is a hypothetical question. Suppose that you could gain the entire world. It's now yours. What would it take? What would it profit a man? Well, the answer is just nothing. Like, there's nothing that you could gain in this world that would profit a person in exchange for their soul. Because the soul, the only way that a soul can fall into the kingdom of heaven is through the the blood of Jesus Christ. And so that hypothetical question was posed to answer as nothing. There is nothing that would profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul. And there's nothing a man can give in return for his soul. Peter said, we are redeemed not with perishable things like gold or silver, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ the sacrifice whereby Jesus took on the wrath of God that we deserve and made us right before God, which we don't deserve. The kingdom of God is worth more than the whole world contained. Your eyes have never beheld anything so valuable. You know, and I'm not saying that out of like prideful words. I'm just saying what the Bible tells me. There is nothing more valuable 
than the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing more perfect than this one priceless pearl, this great treasure that's been found. It is worth more than everything combined. The value is so utterly priceless. Do you see the treasure? Do you see the priceless pearl? This treasure, this pearl, this spiritual reality has been ripped out of the word of God for us this morning, that we would not abuse the treasure that we found. And if you will give yourself entirely to God, holding nothing back from him in that simple transaction, there will be given to you all the treasures of the kingdom of heaven. It contains everything your heart yearns for. I mean, we search out all the things that only God can give, but we don't want God. But God is the the source and the means by which all these things take place. And when we go into heaven, we're not searching out the, you know, the, the, the gold roads. We're not searching out the, the pearly gates and everything like that. No, we're looking at Jesus. He is the value that we find in heaven. No matter how rich or poor or famous or insignificant you are, the price is the same for all of us. We must give up everything. A Christian gladly gives up everything. This is the heart of one who's been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have invited us into the priceless kingdom of heaven. Lord, it is so rare to receive this treasure that it takes one man, one God-man, Jesus Christ, to take on the sins of the world on the cross and to impute his righteousness onto us. We have been restrained from receiving what we do deserve, your wrath, and we have received what we don't deserve, your righteousness, in order that we would experience the fullness of peace and joy in your kingdom. And you are the gaze that we have our eyes fixed upon. And when we see you, there's nothing else, just Jesus. And Lord, may we treasure these words up in our hearts as we go about presenting this, that we would take the shovel, in the lives of other people, and we point it in the right direction. And for those that are searching out all those pearls, that we would point them to that one priceless pearl in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we lift our lives up to you, we humble ourselves before you, and we commit our souls to you. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name.